One of my favorite movie scenes as a kid growing up came from Indiana Jones when, maybe you can picture it in your mind, you know, he's on the run, Indy's on the run through some crowded Egyptian street, and all of a sudden he's cornered, and there's a really big intimidating guy with a really big sword, right? And he starts, you know, doing all the sword tricks, and you're thinking to yourself, how in the world is Indiana going to get out of this one? Well, and then that's when you remember the bad guy, right? He's fallen for one of the classic blunders that he brought a sword to a gunfight. That Indiana Jones has a more powerful weapon, and he emerges from the scene unscathed. That scene kind of reminds me of putting this last week's message together with this week. Last week's message was the big guy with the big sword. A really encouraging time at church. Hey, everybody, the world is going to hate you, and there's nothing you can do about it, so brace yourselves. Have a nice week, right? (laughs) Um, That that was kind of what we looked at last week. It was an intense passage, one that maybe even starts to get us really thinking and, and concerned about the world that we live in. But today is the encouragement, the reminder that we have a weapon. There is someone that is on our side who will help us through the intimidating opposition of the world. And so we don't need to be frightened. We can be confident as we seek to do the mission that God has given us because of the helper that he has given us. So please take your Bibles and let's go back to John chapters 15 and 16 this morning. As we turn there, remember, we divided up this passage a little differently than normal, where we're kind of looking at some, and then it goes, it switches topics. So we're dividing where how it describes the opposition of the world we talked about last week. And then this week, we want to come back and look at the passages here at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16 that describe the help that we have in the Spirit. And Jesus was very clear to his disciples, hey, if the world hated me, They're going to hate you, just like I exposed their sin and guilt. Well, you will too, and it will be so irrational that it's all going to fulfill what it says there in verse 25, they hated me without a cause. And then we're going to see how Jesus kind of responds and encourages in light of uh, these very intense words. So let's start just by looking at verses 26 and 27 together at the end of John 15. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, even from these verses, there's a lot of theological discussion that really get into debates between people uh, claiming Christ going back centuries and even millennia. Uh, if you think of something like the Nicene Creed, which maybe some of you are familiar with and how it states uh, kind of theology that the church held to in the fourth century there, it talks about the spirit proceeding from the father and the son. Well, that was a big debate and there was kind of a more Western tradition that said, yes, the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. And then there was a more Eastern tradition that said, oh no, it only proceeds from the, the father. And I think this passage helps show us why I think the Western tradition is more faithful to scripture because you see here clearly both the father and the son have a role in sending the Spirit. In verse 26, Jesus says, whom I, the Spirit, I will send you from the Father. And then the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. They both have a role 
here. But rather than kind of getting into all the nuances of that that has been debated for centuries, what I want you to notice is the unity of the mission and the purpose that is right here in these verses. One, at the end of verse 26, it tells us a big thing about the mission of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Well, it tells us what he's going to do at the end of verse 26. He will bear witness about me. And that's an interesting statement where it's very clear up front, the Holy Spirit is not about seeking attention and glory for himself. He's all about, I want to point people to Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said that he would come. But notice then the connection to the very next verse, verse 27. And you also will bear witness. Now talking to the disciples, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the mission of the Spirit, hey, I'm here to bear witness about Christ. Hey, disciples, what's your mission? To bear witness about Christ. It's the same mission. Now, in some ways, this is unique for the disciples. Jesus says, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, none of us can say we've been with Christ from the beginning. We weren't physically present eyewitnesses to all that he did. But clearly, we see in Scripture, this role of God's people as witnesses is something for all of God's people. Your mission is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And that is the same mission as the Spirit. Let's write this down for point number one this morning. If you take out your note sheets, share the Spirit's mission. Share the Spirit's mission. The Spirit has come to bear witness to Christ, and that is why you are here too. And we want to start just by even checking our own hearts to make sure, is that the mission that I really am all about? Because that is the mission God has always wanted for his people. And that's not a, even just a New Testament thing. That is something that was told and foretold even in the Old Testament. If you want to look at it, let's go back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43. And we'll see how God has always said his people are going to be his witnesses. Isaiah 43, starting... In verse 8, it says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. And then in verse 10, God speaks. He says, You are my witnesses declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no other. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. So there he makes, makes it very clear. Hey, there is no one like me. And if you need a verse to share with your Mormon neighbors, look again at verse 10. Hey guys, no God formed before me and no God after me. There is no one like me and you, my people, are the ones that are meant to bear witness about me. And if that seems like an intimidating task sometime, look at 
what he says then in chapter 44, verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Making it very clear. Hey, you are my witnesses. Don't be afraid, but be my witnesses. This has always been God's plan for his people. And now that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming, and as we see the Holy Spirit eventually come, we see how that enters a new era. And the Spirit now empowers us for this task. It's actually one of the last things that Jesus says before he ascends back into heaven. If you go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and you're going to see a lot of the things we've been talking about this morning all coming together in this verse. We're in John 15 and 16, the night before Jesus is crucified. Well, here Jesus is speaking right before he will ascend into heaven. And he says in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you see that? Hey, what's going to empower you to bear witness? The Spirit is going to come and empower you, not just here in Jerusalem, but in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. That we live in an age now with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is meant to bear witness about Christ, and he is empowering us in our mission to bear witness about Christ. And this is something that should be true for every believer. Every believer has the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And every Christian should bear witness. Because even Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. But if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before the Father. If you're here today, I hope that your desire is, man, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to walk in the Spirit. Well, there's no way you're going to do that if your mission is not to bear witness about Christ. Because that is the Spirit's mission, and that is what is supposed to be your mission. And all of us need to think of, often in church, we think about witness or witnessing in its verb form, where really most often we see it in Scripture as a noun. No, you are a witness. You have beheld the truth about Jesus. You might not be an eyewitness like the disciples, but you have seen the glory of Jesus Christ through the gospel. You are a witness, and now you should bear witness about that. And even it's the Greek word for witness that we get the English word martyr from. And that's ultimately what they did through their deaths was they bore witness about Christ. Do you really see this as one of the key objectives of your life and your existence as a Christian? I am here to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Even as you think about living here in the Treasure Valley, the reason God has put me here is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. You know, people bear witness about all kinds of things and get excited about all kinds of things. I think about the different places I've lived in my life. Uh, from eight years old to 18 years old, I lived in San Antonio, Texas. And I don't know if you've heard, but Texans really like Texas. 
You guys ever come across a Texan before, right? It's obvious. The saying in Texas is never ask somebody where they're from. If they're from Texas, they'll let you know. And if they're not, you don't want to embarrass them. Like, that's really how they think down in Texas. And you can get just about anything you can possibly imagine in Texas in the shape of Texas, right? Because they love it so much. And living there for 10 years, I always kind of looked around and I'm like, I don't get it. It's really hot, really humid, really flat. The Cowboys are overrated. I, I, don't, I, just, I just don't know what, what all the fuss is about. And the other place that I lived growing up before that and going back after that was California. And I understand why people love California, but I also understand the dissatisfaction that people have with California. It's like, California is a great place. The problem is it's in California. So what are you going to do? <laughs> right? Well, I, we all know what you're going to do. You're going to move to Idaho is what <laughs> you're going to do. And then you come to Idaho and I found like some similarities to Texas because in Texas, you see the shape of Texas everywhere. And then you come to Idaho and it's like, what the shape of Idaho? Oh no, it's another Texas. They're all really excited about their state. And then I started to realize, well, yeah, because they've got a reason to be because Idaho is an amazing place. And now many of you, whether you've lived here for a little while or a long while, you bear witness to how awesome Idaho is. And you evangelize other people and tell them the good news of the good life that they could have in Idaho. And the crowds keep coming. And maybe some of you have stopped evangelizing. <laughs> Just like people stop evangelizing when they feel like their church is getting too full. But anyways, that's another sermon. Maybe actually that's this sermon. Um, but you see, people, they bear witness all the time to things. And even many of you, you're here and you're excited to be here, but we cannot lose sight that, hey, there's a greater mission in our lives. And that is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And whether you've lived here for a while or you're new to the Treasure Valley, I guarantee one of the reasons that you're here is so you can bear witness to Jesus Christ right here in the Treasure Valley. Because we need it right here in the Treasure Valley. Uh, there's a whole... A religion that has a massive following here that doesn't know the real God and doesn't know the real Jesus. There's plenty of people here just living their lives without any thought of God at all. And then there's a lot of people here who think, yeah, I believe in God, I'm a good person. And they really need to know that they need a savior. And if you are not bearing witness, who is? We wanna talk about how excited we are about Idaho. Well, we're all preaching to the choir here. What we need to be more committed to is telling people the good news of Jesus Christ and bearing witness to him. Do you see that as one of your primary objectives in life? And do you see that as one of the primary reasons why God has you right here, right now? There's a lot of good, valid reasons why people are moving to this valley. But what's more important than any of that is eternity. What's more important than any of that is who is God. What's more important than any of that is who is Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you are a witness. So we need to bear witness. And we need to realize there's no way we'll be living out the Spirit's will for our life if we're not bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Because that is what the Spirit is all about. Now that is a difficult mission. I mean, to, to sell someone on the good news of Idaho... That's not that hard because all you need is for the other person to have half a brain, right? <laughs> but to sell someone on the good news of Jesus Christ, that is more difficult because for someone to 
embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, well, guess what that means? They have to admit that they need a Savior. And that is not an easy thing for people to admit. For people to admit that they are sinners who need a Savior. And that's why last week we saw Jesus said, hey, you're going to be opposed. Because people aren't going to like that you expose their sin. And so he gives us this help. And let's look on at what Jesus says. Let's go down to chapter 16 now and look at our next section. Starting in the middle of verse 4 and going to verse 7. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, there's some amazing things, but starting at the beginning of that, Jesus says, I- I've been with you. And so that's why I haven't talked about some of these things. And that makes sense when you think about it. When Jesus was there, most of the animosity was focused on him and not as much on his disciples. But he's saying, hey, now that I'm leaving, it's going to be focused on you. And so now I'm telling you. And then in verse five, he says, none of you is asking, where am I going? And if you've been paying attention, you see at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14, some of the disciples say something pretty similar to, hey, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Where are you going? So what does Jesus mean? It might seem like a contradiction, but what I think Jesus is saying here is, hey, you might be asking, where am I going? But you're not really thinking about that. You're not really asking that. Because you're asking, where are you going? One commentator put it, well, kind of like a child whose dad all of a sudden has to leave because of some emergency. And the kid's like, oh, dad, why why are you leaving? Where are you going? The kid doesn't care where you're going. He just is sad that you are leaving. And that's what's going on with the disciples here. They're they're just sad. That's what he says there in verse 5. Sorrow has filled, or verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart. And you're not really thinking about where I'm going because you should be. Because if you actually thought about where I'm going and what I'm doing, you would be encouraged because of verse seven. Me going away is to your advantage. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I don't think Jesus is saying so much, well, hey, me and the spirit, we can't be here at the same time. I think it's more just, hey, this is the plan. I come and I go back to the Father, and then the Spirit comes. And until I go, the Spirit's not coming. And he says something amazing in verse 7, right? When he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better that you have the Spirit. I've had the privilege of going to Israel several times and leading several church trips there and would love to lead a trip from Compass Bible Church there someday soon. But even as you go, I mean, it's always an amazing thing to, as they say, walk where Jesus walked and to see all these sites of biblical history. But sometimes when you're there, you're always thinking, man, it'd be cool to have walked here when Jesus walked here, to actually see Jesus doing miracles, to actually hear Jesus teaching the crowds. Wouldn't that be better? (laughs) Wrong answer. Because Jesus says right here, no, 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 you've got it better. You've got it better now with the Spirit than they did with Jesus 
in the flesh. That is an amazing statement. And I want to ask us, do you really believe that? Do you actually believe what Jesus is saying when he's saying, hey, it's to your advantage because it's better for you to have the spirit working with you than to have me here. Point number two this morning, trust the spirit's help. Trust the spirit's help. Because I think a lot of us wrestle, it's like, I don't know, having Jesus around, that seems like it'd be pretty powerful. And I don't feel super powerful if I've got the spirit in me. So is it really better with the spirit, with us, than with Christ? Well, Jesus clearly says yes. And then he goes on really to explain why. Because remember, we talked about part of our mission as witnesses. It's going to deal with people have to acknowledge that they're sinners that need a savior. That's not an easy thing. And guess what the Spirit's going to help with? That exact thing. Look at starting in verse 8 now. Look at verses 8 through 11 in John 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. If the world needs to be convicted in order to realize it needs a Savior, the Spirit has come to help. Right? The Spirit has come to show people their sin. And let's walk through each of these Phrases, it says, convict the world in verse nine concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That really the spirit is gonna help people see kind of the core sin that motivates all their other sins. Because we think about all the sins that we do, but really at the center of it is unbelief. Just like we think about a righteous life and the Christian life, at the center of that is faith. I believe God is who he says he is. Well, at the center of a non-Christian life is the opposite of faith, unbelief. I don't believe God and I don't believe what he says. And the spirit has come to show people that, to show them, no, you don't really believe in God. And we need that, especially in a nation where pretty much everybody says they believe in God. But the spirit has come to show people what real belief is. To show people, well, creation, you can look at all this and not believe. You can look at God's word and not believe. You can understand what the cross means and not believe. The spirit will convict concerning sin. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the father and you will see me no longer. That gets us back to some of what we talked about last week, right? How Jesus, just his presence and him being perfect humanity, it showed the world their sin. His righteousness exposed their unrighteousness. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm leaving, so who's going to do that? Who's going to be that righteous example that exposes the unrighteousness of the world? Well, it's going to be the Spirit. And I would argue even it's going to be the Spirit working in the lives of believers. And then finally, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus has won the victory and the spirit is going to be working on the hearts of unbelievers to give them that sense of this is not right. And that that sense of really impending judgment that will drive them to repentance. And the spirit doing that work is better than having Jesus with us. 
And you still might be like, yeah, I know it says that, but I'm not so sure. Well, I think if we keep going in scripture, past Jesus' promises here, we see it happen exactly like he says it's going to. It is going to be better for Christians and the church to have the spirit. Think about it this way. How many people are following Jesus when Jesus dies? Not many. Not many are. Even when the book of Acts begins, there's about 120 people praying together in a room. So after three years of ministry and all these miracles and countless teachings, we've got like 120 people staying strong. But then we get to Acts chapter 2. And why don't you actually turn there to Acts chapter 2. And Jesus has been making these promises about the Holy Spirit. Well, they're fulfilled beginning in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and begins to indwell believers and empower their witness for Christ. And here, in one day, 3,000 people are going to believe, right? You want to talk about church growth, right? Going from 120 to 3,120 in one day right? That's an amazing thing. What's the difference? Well, Jesus had ascended and now guess who was there? The spirit. And what was he doing? Look at the end of the sermon. In verse 36, Peter, so the spirit comes, they're they're speaking in tongues. There's kind of this scene. And then Peter preaches and he's pointing to Jesus as risen from the dead as the Messiah. And he lands it in verse 36, where he says, let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then in verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What does that sound like? Conviction, right? That's another way of talking about conviction. As Peter preached this, they were convicted. They were cut to the heart. It sounds like, oh, the spirit came and guess what he started doing? convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And in one day, 3,000 people repented and embraced Jesus as the Savior. So just like Jesus said, it was to their advantage. And now we have seen the gospel spread all throughout the world through the power of Christians indwelt by the Spirit and the Spirit doing this work of conviction. I think we don't have time to do a full theology of the Holy Spirit today, and that's not what we see in John. But we know that the Spirit indwells believers, and that has a lot of implications for our lives. But one thing I think we see here is that the Spirit does have a role to play pre-conversion in the hearts of unbelievers, leading them to faith. John has already said earlier in his gospel, actually, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But the Spirit has to be working. And yes, when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ, that is a real choice that we are making, but it is a choice that is only possible when the Spirit has worked on our hearts and brought that conviction. And I mean, can't you see this in your own story? Like that, that's what I'm trying even just to get to. Think of your own testimony. I think of myself, and it was just a normal school day in January of 1998. And then somebody's sharing their testimony in their classroom, and all of a sudden, I'm in tears because he's talking about 
me, and I know I am a sinner who needs a savior. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit working to convict. And some of you, you think of your own story and you realize, hey, there was something where I didn't see it before, but now I see it, right? And that's the Spirit working in our hearts. And for some of you, it was a clear moment and you remember it. Some of you, it was over time. But none of us is here today with our eyes open following Christ without the Spirit working to convict us of our sin and point us to Christ. Now, this idea that, hey, we need the Spirit to work on our hearts or we're not going to see, we're not going to choose Christ. Some people take that idea and they use it to downplay evangelism. Kind of, well, hey, if the Spirit's got to work, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. So, I mean, I'm just going to sit back and, I mean, the Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's going to do. So, who cares what I do? There's a theological word we use to describe that. And it's called, the word is dumb, okay? (laughs) It's just ridiculous to think that way because that is not at all what the Bible says. And you're actually missing the whole point. If you think, well, hey, the Spirit's got to work to convict people and prepare their hearts and open their hearts to receive Christ, and I can't do that, so what am I doing? No, we should be thinking totally opposite. Wow, the Spirit is working, so I should get out there and be sharing because the Spirit is going to work as people give the gospel. You're not alone when you bear witness to Christ because the Spirit is going to work to convict hearts and to bring people to Christ. Now, if we think of thoughts like this and in any way think, ah, that makes us think less importantly of evangelism. We're thinking about it all wrong. It should get us more excited to share our faith because you feel, man, I can't open people's eyes. Anybody feel that? I feel that all the time. Well, guess what? It's not up to you. The spirit is working with you, in you, and through you. And not only should it fire us up to evangelize, I think it should inform us even in how we evangelize. The the Spirit is going to help us through convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if we're never talking about those things, uh, is that really going to happen? And even I want to show you another example from Acts if you go to chapter 24 and we see how the Apostle Paul evangelized. In Acts 24, verse 24. And here now he's in prison under the Roman rulers in Judea, under the governor, the Roman governor, a man named Felix. And in verse 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. But Paul was bringing up, I mean, we see two of the same words, sin, righteousness, judgment, the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul is reasoning with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That needs to be a part of our evangelism. Many times in evangelism, we just want to keep it all intellectual. And let's get into just the apologetics and the reasons why you should believe that God is real. And hey, that's a good and important thing. Or other times we just try to, you know, be the salesman and just kind of be like, hey guys, you know, you don't understand. Jesus is so amazing. He's better than anything else. You got to try Jesus. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if it's missing the component of really helping people see why they need Jesus, I think your evangelism is going to be off. I heard a helpful sermon once from a guy who did a lot of evangelism and he talked about, hey, 
It's not just going for their intellect. It's not just going for their emotion. It's going after their conscience. That's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. And that's what the spirit has come to help us do, to go after their conscience, to say, hey, you know you don't believe. You know you're unrighteous. You know judgment is coming. You need Jesus. And obviously we do that graciously because none of us are there saying, well, pfft, I got it figured out. I'm, I'm righteous, but hey, you're not. It's hey, the only reason I'm saved is because the spirit convicted me and I found the savior. And we need to share that with the world. We need to share the spirit's mission, but we need to trust that the spirit is here to help us out and to help us even by doing the work that we can't do of conviction, right? And I depend on that every time I preach. And I'm praying that, hey, the Spirit is doing that work of conviction on some of you here today, helping you see, you know what? I don't really believe. And my life is full of unrighteousness. And I know, if I'm honest, that judgment is coming. There's nothing I can say. There's no illustration I can use to convince you of that. I'm totally dependent on the Spirit to get a hold of your heart. And I'm praying that the Spirit works on some of you here today to really show you your need for Christ. So the Spirit is helping us through this work of conviction, but there's another way that the Spirit is helping us in this mission, this mission of pointing to Christ. And we're going to see that in the last few verses as we look at verses 12 through 15. Back in John 16, verses 12 through 15, follow along as I read those. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is saying, guys, there's more. There's more coming. And the spirit, he is going to lead you into it. He's going to lead you into all truth. Point number three this morning, lean on the spirit's revelation. Lean on the spirit's revelation. Now with our first point, we talked about, hey, you're, you bear witness to Christ, but it's a little different than the disciples because you're not an eyewitness like they were. Well, I think it's similar with this point as well. Hey, the Spirit is going to help you. He's going to lead you into all truth, and you need to lean on his revelation, but that's going to look a little different for you than it did for the disciples. And part of that is, I believe a big part of what is going on here in a lot of what Jesus has already said about the helper in these passages is he is talking about the rest or really the New Testament that is yet to be written. And the Spirit is going to come, and it's going to help you guys write the New Testament, right? That one of the guys that Jesus is talking to is going to go write the Gospel of John, which we have been studying now for the last 11 years, right? <laughs> Not really. We're, our church has only been here for three years, so it hasn't been that long, right? But see, we're studying something that was written by somebody that was listening to Jesus say those words. And Scripture makes clear Jesus is the supreme revelation. Hebrews 1 talks about in former times, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. Well, what the New Testament does, it doesn't really add to Jesus. It 
shows us who Jesus is, explains what Jesus is, what he said, and the implications of it. That's what we have in the New Testament. Can you imagine the Christian life without it? Can you imagine trying to follow Christ if all we had was the Old Testament and then like some oral tradition that we knew about Jesus dying on a cross and rising again? Wouldn't that be difficult? Think about evangelizing. What if you couldn't use the New Testament at all? Well, maybe that's a challenge. We should be able, the gospel's there in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, isn't it clearer, more explicit, more straightforward? It makes sense that most of the verses you're going to use to share your faith will come from the New Testament. So I think in a big way, what Jesus is talking about here, even when he talks about, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Well, what's that book at the end of the Bible? Revelation, doesn't it declare the things that are to come? And who wrote that? Oh, the apostle John wrote that. This the same guy that is here listening to Jesus say these very words. So I think in a big way, what we have right here in our hands is a fulfillment of what Jesus is saying in this passage. But you want to ask sometimes, well, is that it? Is that all that Jesus is talking about? Is the Holy Spirit working in my life as well? Or is it just, well, we've got the New Testament and that's, that's it. And I say, yes, the Holy Spirit is absolutely working in our lives and continuing to work and to lead us into all truth. But I want us to think carefully about how. Because when we start getting into some of this and we, we don't think about it carefully, we can start to get off into what I like to refer to as Star Wars theology, right? Where it's, hey, the Holy Spirit, that's when, hey, like Darth Vader says to Luke, search your feelings, Luke, right? And that's what it means to follow the Holy Spirit. Just kind of search out your, your feelings. And there gets to be a lot of fuzzy language when we try to explain this topic. And obviously, you know, we can turn on those cable TV channels with kind of the crazy preachers and get some like extreme examples of this and people that aren't even preaching the gospel. But I'm concerned there's lots of people that even would explain the gospel the same way you and I would that are very unclear when they talk about what this looks like. And you'll hear messages saying, well, hey, what does it look like for the spirit to lead me and to guide me into the truth? And how do I use that in my life? And you'll hear preachers say, well, it looks like, you know, hey, pray for somebody. And then just, you know, kind of say their name and then just kind of sit there and listen. And I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that, but it seems like what they mean is, and then just whatever the first thought that pops into your head is, just run with it, right? And, and, and then be, the, the, the preachers will tell you, and be brave and be courageous to go share this with that person. And it doesn't matter if what popped into your head was, say, puppy dogs and potatoes, just go be brave and share it with them. And the Holy Spirit will help them put it all together. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I even heard one sermon where the pastor was encouraging people to do something like that. And at one point he said, guys, it's going to get weird. And I want you to circle those words here in John 16, 12 through 15. It's going to get weird, right? See where it says that the spirit of truth comes and he will guide you into all truth. And it's going to get weird. You see where it, where it says that? The language here, unlike much modern preaching about the spirit, doesn't seem very fuzzy. It seems very clear. He's the spirit of truth. He's going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to speak to you with authority. Not his authority, but my authority. And he is going to declare to you. It all seems very clear. It all seems very authoritative. And when we start explaining the Trinity, I'm like, well, there's the Father. He's, he's the Father. And there's the Son. Well, that's obviously Jesus. And then there's the Holy Spirit. He's the weird one. 
I don't think we're reflecting faithfully what the Bible actually says. And I hope we can all understand and see how often this gets real fuzzy, unclear, and it just starts to lean into, well, the Holy Spirit is your feelings. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But at the same time, you're probably thinking, well, doesn't the Spirit work in some ways that I don't really understand? And aren't there times where I'm prompted to to do something and I don't know why, but it really seems to be a good and, and godly thing? And doesn't Jesus even say the Spirit is... In chapter three, the spirit is like the wind. You, you can't see it, but you see its effects. And so we, we don't really understand everything about the spirit. That's true. I don't think we can explain how it all works. But what I want to encourage us to do is instead of just leaning into our feelings and thinking that's how it works, to really lean into scripture. And there's two passages that I want you to look at that I think connect these ideas. We're going to look at both of them back to back and see how similar they are, except for one phrase. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. And it's important that you turn to these ones because I really want you to look at these with your own eyes. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, and then we're going to jump to another verse in Colossians. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18 where it says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And I don't know who needs to hear that on the 4th of July, but again, that's a different sermon. (laughs) But then notice what it says next. But be filled with the Spirit. And then look at what it goes on to say, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to talk about your homes. Hey, wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters, all of these different things. Now turn with me just two books over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. And what you're going to notice is starts with a different phrase, but then it gets to all the same things. Colossians 3.16 starts with, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then it talks about your homes, wives, husbands, children, parents, masters, slaves, all these different things. See those similarities? And it starts with just two different phrases, but they equal the same thing. So you algebra graduates in the room, what does that tell us? Those phrases, they're telling us the same thing. You want to, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly? Well, that's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And then it's going to look like teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, uh, spiritual worship and singing, godliness in our homes. That's what it is all going to look like. So again, do you want to be filled with the Spirit? If you're a Christian, the answer should be yes, absolutely. Then be filled with the Scriptures because you're not going to be able to be filled with the Spirit if you're not filled with the Scriptures, with the truth that the Spirit has guided us into. And then is the Spirit going to work through that word today? Again, yes, absolutely. But I think we will know more of that when we lean more into Scripture. Think of that idea of even encouraging somebody else. 
and even I've found this from my own experience, usually it's not effective when it's just, well, I think of somebody's name and then just roll with my feelings. It's no, I'm in the word. And as I'm in God's word, God does bring people to mind. And then you think, hey, you know what? I really want to reach out to somebody and encourage them with what I read in the scriptures. And as you do that and you reach out to somebody instead of, well, hey, I thought of puppy dogs and potatoes and I have no idea what it means, but here you go. We reach out and say, hey, I read this first and it really made me think of you and I hope it encourages you today. I think we're going to be a lot more effective and we're going to sound more like spirit-filled, scripture-filled believers instead of amateur fortune tellers. So we lean into God's word and God is going to continue, I firmly believe, to guide us into all truth. We talk about illumination and God is going to help us understand the scriptures. And every time you open God's word, you should pray, God, help me, help me to understand. And that understanding isn't just going to be, you know, mentally figuring it out in a classroom type setting, but even understanding what it means and the difference it should make in your life. Yes, the Spirit does a work of conviction in unbelievers to bring them to Christ. You better believe through his word, the Spirit is going to continue to convict you and continue to show your sin and continue to show you how you need to change. And as you read God's word, you're going to find encouragement that the Spirit is going to bring you through his word. That is just the right word that you needed at just the right time. Don't you see how this makes sense? Even just think of if you went to somebody for counsel about something, right? And even we see that in those verses in Ephesians and Colossians, this idea of teaching and admonishing one another. Think if you went to somebody, your pastor or a small group leader or a friend that you trust that you think is a godly person, and they say, well, hey, let's just, let's just search our feelings together and see where the Spirit leads. Do you really think you'd want to listen to that counsel? Or do you think you'd want to listen to somebody who says, hey, that's a great question, Let's open up our Bibles and the Spirit is going to lead us as we look at God's inspired words. And the Spirit is going to help us understand how to apply them and the difference that they should make in our lives. Again, I depend on this every single week in preaching. You should depend on this every single day as you open up God's word. Without the Spirit working in our hearts, there's no way we're going to be able to make sense of this and actually live this out. But the good news is we have the Spirit's help. We have the New Testament. And we have the Spirit living inside of us, helping us to understand, apply, and even share the Word of God with others. Whether that's encouraging another believer or even what Jesus says, hey, they're going to put you on trial. Don't worry about what you're going to say because the Spirit's going to help you know what to say. The Spirit is going to be working in all kinds of ways in our lives, but we're going to know that better. And be led more clearly when we're leaning into God's word instead of just leaning into our feelings. We are in a battle. You know, you think of that big guy with that big sword in Indiana Jones trying to intimidate, right? In many ways, that's what the world wants to do to Christians today. It wants to talk a big game about how stupid Christians are and how could you believe those fairy tales in the Bible? Well, in response to all of that, God has given us a weapon. And he's given us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's use it and know that as we use it, the Spirit is there to help us. And so even last week when we talked about, hey, persecution, Jesus says it's going to come, and hey, if you open your eyes and you think at all about what's going on in our culture, you see it on the rise. And that can be kind of a heavy thing, a discouraging thing to think about. But even last week we talked about, hey, we shouldn't be 
pessimistic. And I hope today's study has given us many reasons to be optimistic and to be encouraged and to look forward saying, hey, I don't know which way the world is going. And it looks like it's going in the wrong direction, but we have the spirit to help us in our mission. And another thing that we talked about last week was even as we see the world going downhill, we should not be arrogant. We should remember, hey, I was saved out of the world. And so even as we remember that, we want to celebrate at the end of our service day, the Lord's table together. And we want to reflect on what God has done for us and to realize, hey, if we are here and we've got the Spirit's help and we can be excited about that, that's not because of me. That's not because of what I did. It's because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and rose again. And so hopefully you got some of the elements as you came in. If you did not, go ahead and raise your hand and one of our ushers will will come to you. Just keep your hand in the air and one of them will find you and make sure that you get that. But John's going to play here. And what we want to do is just take a few moments to pray, to think, and to reflect. Maybe today you can thank God for what he has done in saving you. Thank God for the help of the Spirit. And also, Scripture teaches us to use this time to examine ourselves, to search our own hearts, to see if there's sin in our own lives, and to deal with that right now. So even as you wait and the ushers come around and and give you what you need, take a few moments to pray, and then I will come back up, and we will take these elements together. On the night before Jesus was crucified, when he instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he said he would not partake of this again until he did it with them in the kingdom. But we know again, as we talked about today, Jesus did not leave his people alone. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And so today, as we partake of the bread and the cup together, I hope it's a reminder to us, first and foremost, of what Jesus did for us. But today, may it also be a reminder to us of the gift that Jesus left behind, the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been sent to help us, the spirit of truth. And may we be thankful for that today. So let's do this now in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. God, even as we taste this bread and this cup, help us to remember what they signify, God, that The bread reminds us of the body of Christ, which was broken and crucified for us. God, that the the cup reminds us of the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. God, stir up our hearts to be thankful, Lord, that in the midst of a world that is just increasingly growing worse and worse, God, may we be thankful that you called us out of it. May we be thankful for how your spirit convicted us and brought us to Christ. And God, I I just pray that, Lord, we would live out the mission that we are meant to live with the spirit at work in us, God, and that we would trust you, God, that we would follow you. And God, today, even as we remember and celebrate our nation, that we would start today by remembering and celebrating the freedom we have in Christ that he bought for us with his own blood. God, fill us with worship as we leave here today. May we leave here rejoicing 
in our Savior and confident in the help He has given us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.